This show is brought to you by Whatever You Say Productions, starting conversations since 2018. Hey, everybody. Welcome. And welcome back to another exciting <laughs> installment of Microscope. Woo! So, yeah. So, last time we told you all about that hot, hot new paper that just dropped a couple months ago. Sexy. Yeah, real. Yeah, about the presence of phosphine gas in the high clouds of Venus, which may or may not be an indication that there are living organisms floating in the Venusian clouds, which was really super cool. Um, but this paper, as we were saying, was really an in-depth exploration into a subtopic within the broader discipline of astrobiology. And Mike and I are the biggest astrobiology stands you'll find out there. And so we just wanted to share kind of what that's all about with y'all and kind of just nerd out about it for a sec. That sound cool, Mike? I am always prepared to nerd out about anything and everything. Hell yeah. That's the, and that's all the, the time. Vibe. Yeah. That is the vibe. So yeah, we know that the field of astrobiology, if we break down that word astro meaning space stuff and biology meaning living life, creepy crawly kind of stuff. So when we say astrobiology, we're looking for life elsewhere in space uh, that is not on Earth, because obviously we know Earth has life, but Earth's the only place we know of that for sure has life that we know of right now. N of one. N of one, as we say in statistics, N being the number of replicates which you have in your study. Um, side note, also very useful for interpreting all these COVID statistics. Look at their N and see who's got big Ns, who's got small Ns, and it, it tells you a lot right there. But for the record, all ends are usable. Yes, true that. <laughs> <laughs> but we won't get into that. Anyway, I digress. In terms of that being the name of this discipline, astrobiology, it kind of really all starts with physics, though. And the main thing to remember about that is the, the laws big of bang. No. That's, <laughs> we'll get back there. That's the start of everything. That's the start of everything. And that is actually the exact reason why, and this is the most important tenet, I think, in astrobiology, is that the laws of physics, as we have worked them out here on Earth, are universal throughout the mm -hmm. cosmos. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They're, the laws of physics, like the strength of gravity, is going to be the same whether you measure it here on Earth or you measure it in the farthest away galaxy possible, all of our data suggests that the laws of physics are consistent across the universe. Exactly. That means here on planet Earth, the same laws and the same, I guess you could even say chemical reactions, because those are technically the physics, mm -hmm. apply here as they do on the outer reaches of our solar system, just for example. So as, so on Pluto, if you, well, okay, now I'm 
If you drop a feather, it'll fall at the same speed. But no, that's actually very wrong because well, Pluto is much smaller and has a very different gravitational pull. Exactly. But, but we can work out how much slower it will fall because those laws are the same. Even right. though Earth versus Pluto, uh, Earth has a much greater mass than Pluto because we know that gravity is a function of the mass of the two objects that are in gravitational um, attraction to one another, we can work out precisely. Um, how fast or how slow, how much uh, more slowly a feather will fall to the ground or let's say, use a hammer for to avoid air resistance bullshit. Um, <laughs> <laughs> how much more slowly a hammer will fall to the ground on Pluto than on Earth. And again, that just goes back to the idea that the laws of physics are consistent throughout the universe. All telescopic measurements of the remnants of the Big Bang, that is the leftover radiation that can be seen no matter where in the night sky you po uh, point your telescope, you'll see this background radiation of the Big Bang. And that really suggests that we live in a homogeneous universe in terms of physical laws, like the physical forces. Exactly. Mike, you want to take us through what are the four fundamental forces? Oh, way to throw me on the bus because I definitely <laughs> don't know them. <laughs> you do. Wait, can I? Let me just think about it. Let me think yeah. about it for a little bit. Okay, so there's definitely gravity. One. Electromagnetic. Two. And is it strong and weak? That's correct. Yeah. You oh, got my it. God. I mean, you okay, had this. Fuck. Yes. The strong <laughs> and weak nuclear forces. Yeah, so just to recap what Mike said, the four um, – the four fundamental forces in the uh, standard model of physics as it stands today, basically. Gravity, that is the attraction between two massive bodies. So that's you are a massive body and the Earth is a massive body. But because the Earth is so much more massive than you, you are gravitationally bound to it. Um, mm -hmm. So that's one force. Electromagnetism, uh, much more subtle at our scale, at least. However, at the scale of atoms and molecules, much more profound than gravity. So like in electromagnetism at our scale, that's like rubbing a balloon against your head and then you can stick it to the wall. You are or even, <laughs> ma does magnetism fall under there? Yeah, electromagnetism, yes. Yeah, so Yeah, okay. <laughs> yes, oh, <God>. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely, yes. Yeah. So magnets, like your refrigerator magnet sticking to, um, metal because of the way that the molecules in the uh, whatever the magnetic substance you're dealing with are pointing um, that also so those two are pretty familiar to us at least mm -hmm. uh, the strong and weak because we can sense those we, we, we can, can physically sense those we can sense those and so much of our technology and our physiology is based on uh, some combination of gravity and electromagnetism, the understanding of those two forces. Exactly. Uh, strong and weak nuclear forces, not as much, because those really only apply in the nuclei of atoms, which on our day-to-day -day life, we just don't really deal with too much. I mean, um, technically we do because they're around us at all times. And they're they around us together, but... Exactly. Without them, there would be no atoms. Without atoms, there would be no molecules, so on and so forth, to no human beings to talk about it on our super dope microscope podcast. 
And that's kind of the, the flow of information and the way we think about it in astrobiology is that biology itself is really just an emergent property of physics. Mike, you want to tell the folks at home about what emergent properties are? Is this another question that you really threw me out of the bus when you asked I don't know. I'm, I'm, only asking like, you, <laughs> I'm only asking you questions I know that you know the answer to. Oh, God, I definitely don't know this answer. Why? Why? Why am I being quizzed? <laughs> you have no brain fart. I'm just trying to throw it off. Anyway, so a scientist determined something to be an emergent property where it emerges from a complex system of simple components. So for instance, the wetness of water is a really popular example of something that's an emergent property. Because if you just have one water molecule no matter how you measure it with the most sophisticated machinery, it won't have that attribute of wetness in that, um, you know, when you get out of the pool, you got little drops of water all over your skin that have coalesced because of the surface tension. Um, but that's only because there's trillions of molecules of water in each one of those little droplets. And that mm -hmm. wetness can only emerge when there's a huge collection of these extremely simple um, components within that single drop of water. And so that's what we mean when we say biology is an emergent property of the laws of physics, is that in order to hypothesize how life could have gotten started on Earth or anywhere else in the, in the universe, we really need to have a fundamental understanding of these fundamental forces of physics uh, to try to make inferences about where we might want to look for life, um, what signs we might use to look for life, such as the phosphine in the Venusian atmosphere, like we just said. And bringing that all together is really the underlying uh, mode of thought in astrobiology. Yeah, so the emergent properties that lead to life you know, like as Kevin was talking about in terms of water is one, water is actually one of the most important molecules, at least for life that we know about. But for like for water to exist within a state um, in which, you know, our understanding that biology can occur, the idea of where within both a galaxy and within a solar system, you're in this, what we consider to be a Goldilocks zone where the right molecules um, have formed and have essentially uh, been deposited as well as like it's the right temperature for water to exist in this water uh, within its liquid state and not its solid or, and or gaseous state. But I just noticed myself getting a little off track in terms of, I was saying the right conditions. I, I mean, Kevin, you would agree with me. Like I say right in quotations and maybe there's a better word I could yeah. use. It's earth-like conditions because again, earth, -like earth is our there you end go. Up yeah, one yeah, yeah, for yeah. having life. Therefore, if something is earth-like in the sense of it has liquid water, it may be a good candidate to look for life there, mm -hmm. at least that. However, that's not to discard things that are not earth-like because we just for all don't we know. know life could exist in completely different chemical configurations. Exactly, exactly. And like, so just 
as I move forward with what I'm going to talk about, just remember that it is solely based on like our understanding of life and not even like our understanding of life, like who we are essentially, you know, like we are life in this universe. And this is, I got such a rash on my arm. Um, and this is, you know, who we are. So yeah, when I was talking about being within this Goldilocks zone, there's like a Goldilocks zone within the galaxy. And this uh, is in terms of how many, so as stars burn, they fuse and make heavier and heavier elements. As more and more stars explode and release these elements out into the galaxy, you get these formations of new solar systems with heavier elements. And then as this sort of evolution of, uh, what are they called, supernovas? Is that when a star explodes? Correct, yeah, supernova. Yeah. So as you have this evolution of supernovas, you basically get this ring around a galaxy where you have sort of the right conditions and the right concentrations of compounds uh, or elements that have been formed over trillions, I think trillions of years for Earth-like planets and chemical compositions to actually form. Taking that one step further, right? Because we know that stars are sort of the center of galaxies. And do we have a number for how many or, uh, stars are the center of solar systems? Do we have a, an idea of how many solar systems there are? Like in terms of how many stars have we looked at that definitely have planets around them? Um, since the Kepler, oh no, 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 not the Kepler mission. Was it the Kepler? telescope kepler yeah. was one of them but there have been like two more yeah movies. i think since the kepler and any subsequent uh missions kepler was a space telescope specifically designed to look for exactly what mike's talking about here solar systems around other stars last i checked it was like in the many hundreds i think it was over 700 that they had cool. identified and been able to tease out roughly what the mass of each planetary body around Okay. Star was, or I might be thinking of that might have been the total count of exoplanets. So, mm -hmm. like, divide that number by like nine or ten. Okay. Um, I, yeah, I, I believe it was in the many of hundreds. Either way. Okay. I was thinking more like percentage of stars that have planets around them. Oh, versus yeah, I don't have that off the top of my head. That'd be no, really interesting I don't actually. To find. Well, the thing is, we would need a very high end ah, for <laughs> for us yep. to like actually accurately sort of quantify that so maybe not. absolutely yeah but, but that's um, kind of what they made these space telescopes for was to be able to look at many many star systems uh very rapidly to get that high end and see well how 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 common is it for a star to even have planets around it exactly like, that's something we we didn't know till very recently i mean around our star there are 10 or nine we're at eight now remember of things considered planets, however, things rotate. Wait, but I thought there was that planet X. I haven't been keeping up with that. Oh, okay. Earth, <laughs> okay. <laughs> I can't tell you yay or nay on that. I have heard little whisperings of, uh, yeah. Oh, we'll get back to you guys on that one. Um, but yeah, we were at eight planets, but planet kind of, you know, like everything else in science is kind of just an arbitrary definition based on a continuous value. The continuous value were in in question here is just mass so 
Well, mass and orbit. Yeah, mass orbital shape, right? So Pluto was just too small and too off to make the cut. It's too oblique, yeah. Yeah, so we call that not a planet anymore. It's still out there, but there's also hundreds and hundreds of objects the size of Pluto that have kind of weird orbits that we also don't call planets, call them Kuiper Belt objects. Uh, But they're just smaller, rocky things, so essentially kind of made of the same stuff kind of playing the same role as a planet. Um, but that, that's well, just a, they, a name. Play, well, here's the question. Do planets play a role? Uh, gravitationally. Gravitationally, I mean. So the gravitational influence, however minor, because of, again, the gravitational differentiate, different, uh, the mass differential between the sun and a given planet, um, kind of just like how <laughs> the mass differential between your body and the mass of the Earth is so vast that your gravitational influence on the Earth isn't super great, probably not even measurable, but it's there. Um, same thing with like a very small, a smaller planet like Mars or Earth. Its gravitational influence on the Sun may be a little bigger, but still um, uh, not super big. But that's what I would mean by role they play is that they just exert some sort of gravitational influence, which could influence the way that the entire solar system um, orbits around the center of the galaxy, which is another uh, celestial motion taken into account. But anyway. Um, yeah, you got a little <laughs> off track there. Yeah. But, we so wait, wait, wait. I, I want one point. I, I just want to point out one thing. Um, I, so I questioned you when you said the word like roll or not roll. What did you say? Yeah, role was the word. Role, was, yeah. I was and trying to so defend like, that. Yeah, yeah. Role is, you know, like, I would put that in quotation marks, but getting back to astrobiology and the sort of how life can form, you know, and particularly uh, intelligent life, or just like multicellular life, or like, you know, not, not, time needs to occur before a planet that is capable of forming Earth-like life, you know, cannot have a mass extinction or a drastic um uh, or catastrophic event so yeah I like think, a literally uh, earth-shattering event like a giant exactly. asteroid strikes it and just vaporizes the entire planet or it's its orbit around its host star is just right and it just like falls into the sun and is vaporized immediately or exactly. the star goes supernova uh, so many earth ending events can happen in space that right. that's something else you need to take into account for is has the planet been around long enough for life to develop will it have enough time for life to develop given all these uh exactly <laughs> these hazards and, that are out there and i kind of want to say that you know these kepler belt ob- objects and kuiper even like belt. the kuiper and yeah. these um gas giants like they partly play a role in sort of providing time and protecting planets on the inner solar system from these catastrophic events um, so that life can sort of occur, so that time can, you know, continue without having something completely wiping the slate clean. (laughs) Yeah, the the entire planet. Yeah, that kind of goes back to, and I've never thought about this in this way before, the idea of the Goldilocks zone. There's Mm -hmm. the Goldilocks zone 
as being sufficiently far away from the center of the galaxy where there's a black hole and that's going to mess everything up. So there's a Goldilocks zone for the solar system and there's a Goldilocks zone for a planet within a solar system. And in mm-hmm. our case, that's the Earth is just the right distance from the sun for there to be water. And I would add from Mike's comment that there are these gas giants, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune that they're protecting us are protecting us from asteroids and shit that would otherwise fly and possibly hit us because they're so large their gravitational influence on asteroids and stuff like that is going to just draw them into those gas giants away from us ideally Mm -hmm. i actually never thought about that that's really cool mike really yeah well i'm glad i got you thinking (laughs) yeah that's fun but uh yeah, no, I, the, so the other thing is the, I, well, I was talking about it a little bit, the Goldilocks zone for the galaxy in terms of like how many, uh, why am I getting a phone call? In terms of um, like the composition of compounds, like closer to the center of the solar or closer to the center of the galaxy you have much lighter weight elements while farther away you have much heavier elements but like within this region we have sort of a lot of these medium elements you know chomps that sort of allow for earth-like life to occur yeah so onto that earth life let's uh give the folks at home kind of given the current scientific consensus on how life arose on earth and what were some of the key uh principles that had to be um you know sought through to uh you know develop life as we know it today yeah so like within this goldilocks zone of a solar system you get this liquid water so i let's i'm gonna paint a picture for our audience like a very vivid story like a children's book so (laughs) <laughs> in early Earth, when you had these comets, which comets are very different from asteroids in that they are mostly comprised of ice or water, as asteroids are composed of mainly rock or solid rock. So, at, you know, within this Goldilocks zone, you have this premature Earth that has, you know, started to form. It's still very molten. It's still... Uh, very young in terms of its age, but you get these comets that are just smashing into it. And these comets are sort of covering and just depositing all this water that starting out as ice, but now becoming liquid on planet earth, on this young planet earth. And as billions of years start, oh, I guess it's only 4 billion. So as millions of years start to pass, you get these sort of pools around earth where you have both liquid water as well as sort of the like gunk essentially the tidal pools and pretty much organic molecules that most light or that life is made of but it's not life it's like you had a bucket full of legos but nothing was put together right right so that was occurring in those ponds, but then also around the hydrothermal vents that were deep in the sea's oceans. So there was kind of like two areas on Earth where you had this constant liquid water being fluctuated around with all these organic molecules. 
And we keep, or I keep pointing out organic molecules because these are what's important to sort of the early steps of like self-replicating molecules. Um, and I think Kevin and I can both agree, like a self-replicating molecule are sort of like the early steps of what we would consider life to kind of be in a way. Absolutely. I think that's really the bottom line for when scientists argue about a definition of what constitutes a living thing. It would be that faithful self-replication. Now, the self-replication could take takes place in cells as we know it today. But at this stage that we're talking about here, very early in life history, who's to say? We really don't know which came first, the cell which is bound in a, in a lipid membrane but definitely not that. That didn't come first. Uh, I feel like you could confidently. Uh. I don't know. I don't. Uh, I think there's great hypotheses about it on both sides of this debate. Of which it's it's straight up a chicken egg paradox. It's did this little these little lipid vesicles develop first, and then self replicating molecules got like enclosed in those and somehow replicated that or were these self-replicating molecules outside of these lipid inclusions um, what came first be it them nucleic acids be that pro- self-replicating proteins some um, in a nutshell folks the well, scientific community yeah. is at, we have uh, no at a loss here. for this at, yeah. uh, everything we're talking about is purely hypothetical and there's no like defining experiments that have really pointed to one thing or another. Well, I'm, I will what makes say, it so though. Tantalizing. Ooh, good word. Tantalizing. <laughs> it's on the tip of my tongue. Um, <laughs> but so I will say there is a lot of evidence for these early self-replicating molecules because I know Kevin was just like chicken or egg, but like I am convinced. <laughs> I have drank the Kool-Aid. But we, we talk about sort of RNA world versus the DNA world. And both of these are considered a type of molecule called nucleic acids. And they have the ability to sort of encode, encode information as well as having uh, the ability to duplicate itself, this enzymatic ability to like- Precisely, yeah. So that's- To replicate itself. That's a yeah. big I, that, thing thrown around in this talk is this idea called the RNA world hypothesis. And mm-hmm. I'd like everybody to walk away kind of knowing a little bit about the RNA world hypothesis here which is exactly what Mike just said. RNA, as opposed to DNA, uh, the important thing for, for this hypothesis is that RNA can not only encode information, but it can also form structures that are capable of catalyzing chemical reactions exactly. and by catalyzing, DNA can't DNA cannot do that. Yeah. That's the yeah. key thing uh, towards the RNA world hypothesis is that in, in the cell, I think I'm sure we've talked about in past episodes in the cell, we have this central dogma of molecular biology where DNA encodes genes, which are transcribed into RNA, which are translated into proteins. Those proteins are actually what do the work of the cell doing chemical reactions, repairing things, making new, um, making energy, all those sorts of things. But they can't convey that information. That's what DNA does. Mm -hmm. RNA can do both of those things. Can do it all. 
And that the is jack of why, all trades. Yeah. And that's why this RNA world hypothesis is such an attractive vision is because it explains why there seems to be this central stage in the uh, central dogma of molecular biology that includes RNA. And evolutionarily, mm-hmm. it would make sense that if you started with RNA and it forked both ways into these more specialized features, um, DNA, which was better at faithfully replicating and um, remaining stable over extremely long periods of time and proteins, which can be turned over and changed very rapidly and take on a whole host of uh, functions from energy generation to repair to all sorts of things. Um, And that's why the RNA world hypothesis is so attractive. It makes that missing link. It really makes a lot of sense, but that's not enough in science. We need experiments and there's groups around the world today doing experiments to look into that. Yeah. I never mind. I, I made a joke earlier with Mark where I forgot what we were talking about, but he said something like, Oh, we got to get a second opinion. And I was just like, Oh, you mean we can't just like accept things and force other people to believe it like conspiracy theorists. <laughs> I wonder who you were talking about. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but okay not to get off on a tangent about our uh, the RNA world but that is something that you know if if you want to sound like you're an intelligent person when talking about astrobiology <laughs> RNA world is something that you should yeah keep that in your pocket That's a good keep, one. keep that in your pocket <laughs> exactly this podcast isn't to teach you things it's to make you sound intelligent when you oh, have right. conversations uh, with other people obviously that's why you <laughs> indulge us <laughs> um but so okay i you know the these self-replicating molecules regardless of how it came about or sort of which came first or which came after it sort of kick-started the um to our understanding, our N of one understanding of what cellular life is like. And, you know, that, that's sort of where evolution takes over. It's where once you have this starting, you know, this blank slate that's able to sort of occupy many different niches or occupy many different environments, you get these, you know, you get this blank space that becomes more specialized for these particular environments. And that is pretty much how life started to branch off and evolve into what we see and hear today, a Burgess trip. That's why I said here. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the craziest part is that that very first step of how these self-replicating molecules came to be so unknown. But once you have that, the theory of evolution tells you everything else everything yeah it's so crazy that's why understanding these very beginnings origins of life is so crucial is because darwin basically worked out the rest of it in one fell swoop yeah super crazy to think about it's really it's what is it? Is it the, it's the parsimony of oh, Occam's razor. It's yeah, absolutely. Generally, the most simplest explanation is most likely right because people forget, dude. Nature's fucking lazy. Yes. Oh, <laughs> if that's something real works shit. good enough, 
it's just like, all right, <laughs> this is what I'm doing. Oh, you know? shit. And if it doesn't work, it'll like, instead of going back to the drawing board and working from the ground yeah, up, at least in evolution, it'll just like forward. put some weird shit on top of it. <laughs> and it looks so janky when you step back yet yeah, to the naturalist, which I like to put on the naturalist hat sometimes. It's sublime. And that is what perfection Wait, is. The naturalist? I thought... It, doesn't that mean you just like to be mute all the time? What? A naturalist? Yeah, like someone who like looks at the subjective beauty of nature and kind of like interprets it artistically rather than the scientist, as opposed to the oh, scientist, okay. like logically deducing um, correlations and you know like interconnections. I guess I'm both a naturalist. A you should everyone should nudist, though everyone should be. <laughs> i like fucking love oh, my, oh is that what you asked is the naturalist being a nudist oh my fucking yeah god, well no because oh you know god, like, Mike. I, hang out with, I hang out with too many hippies these days i'm sorry <laughs> is a, I'm, so, I'm sorry folks Oh uh, this is Kevin making fun of me because I'm fucking stupid. <laughs> <laughs> that's all right. Well, yeah, on that note, I think that's what we wanted to hit for uh, our intro for everything. Biology. <laughs> Hell yeah. Well, yeah, we'll uh, be coming back with um, another episode to kind of elaborate on this and the fun part about that is we actually recorded that one before we recorded this one so <laughs> we won't reference this episode at all in that one just kind of keep the timeline straight so just for we warning just, we we got a little excited in uh that episode and we realized hold up we didn't give anybody any context whatsoever Yes. Yeah, so now like, oh my this god, do you know about this? Oh, do you know about that? Ah. Yeah, we nerded out pretty hard, which is also nice. So, so we wanted to give you a little bit of background. So listen to this one first, then listen to that one, and we'll see you next time. Until then, keep it classy, microscope fans. <laughs> Later. <laughs> <laughs>